Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. What's up, y'all? want to welcome you back to the Hunt Stand Podcast, Season 2, and this is your host, Will Cooper. The Hunt Stand Podcast is your weekly source for insightful conversations with veteran hunters, dedicated outdoor enthusiasts, and top industry personnel. I'm going to have guests on here who are true experts in their field, diving into the captivating world of our industry and the great outdoors. With each episode, you, the listener, will receive invaluable knowledge, tips, and guidance on how to enhance your skills in the wild and in life. Tune in to be entertained, informed, and driven to reach new heights. The Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Yamaha and its full line of class-defining, adventure-seeking motorcycles, ATVs, and side-by-side vehicles. The Hunt Stand Podcast is also brought to you by Springfield Armory and their lineup of Model 2020 Waypoint Rifles. And finally, the Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Stealth Cam. It's never been easier to go wireless with the Command Pro app. Capture high-quality photos and videos of all the action wherever you hunt with Stealth Cam's advanced cameras and data plans tailored to your needs. So make sure to check out their website today, StealthCam.com. Hunt Stand Podcast Season 2. Buckle up. It's going to be a good ride. Let's go. All right, guys. Well, Tom and Barry want to welcome you to the Hunt Stand Podcast and just want to thank you all for taking the time this week to sit down with me and talk turkey. You know, turkey season is upon us. It's starting up in Florida. It's getting to be ready full blast here in Texas. So, guys, welcome to the Hunt Stand Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, something we're going to be talking about today is it's real specific with NWTF and before we get into that, I want both of y'all to kind of give the listeners a what I call a thirty foot tree stand view of who you are. So, you know, kind of tell us uh, what you do with NWTF and how you've gotten to where you are in life. So, uh, Barry, if you want to get it started, man, tell us about yourself. Sure. So I graduated from the University of Tennessee uh, back in 1995. I played baseball there for two years, and you know, always had a love for the outdoors thanks to a great family that I grew up in, and so. It just worked out that I was able to go to play baseball in Tennessee and then also get a degree in fish and wildlife management with a minor in forestry. So I was able to combine two of my greatest passions growing up together and, and then play at the University of Tennessee in Southeast Baseball. So it was all a great, great uh, opportunity for me. 1995, I was uh, lucky enough to, to uh, be on the ag campus at the University of Tennessee and Dick Kirby came in and was looking for somebody to run his booth at a, a sports show there in Tennessee. And of course, being a turkey hunter all my life, I raised my hand immediately. And so um, basically he had me run his booth while he was down doing turkey calling seminars. And he came back and we got to talking and he said, have you ever heard of the NWTF? And I said, you know, it's funny. I haven't, you know. And uh, he said, well, you ought to join. It's a great organization. And so anyway, I signed up as a member in 1995. And then just through 
relationships at the University of Tennessee, I was invited to to go to Roanoke, Virginia, and spend some time with um, Jim and Sherry Crumley with Treebart. So I got to know them real well, and they said, "Hey, if you ever grab when you graduate and you don't find that niche you're looking for, let us know, and we'll put in our word for you at the NWTF." Uh, we know James Earl Kenner, and of course, at the time I had just heard the name, I didn't know exactly who he was. But then, of course, come to find out, he's one of the the greatest uh, turkey biologists and and uh, conservation leaders of our time. So it was a pleasure to get to to know him in the early days of the NWTF. I went to work there in uh, December of 2008 as a regional director for Western Kansas and Western Nebraska. Uh, and then just uh, over time, I've gotten to my new position as national director of event fundraising. So basically, I, I cover all of our fundraising operations and state chapter um, associations across the country. So again, it's just been a, a wonderful ride. It's been a blessing for sure. And I've got to meet great people and work for a great organization. And of course, we're celebrating 50 years. Not many organizations can say that they've come on to 50 years. And, and so it's, it's been great. It's been exciting. That's pretty awesome, man. I mean, and, uh, what other better place to talk Turkey for 365 days a year, right? I know, right. <laughs> Can't complain about that. Well, awesome. Well, Tom, tell us about yourself. Well, I, you know, I, I go back to, um, I grew up in, in Colorado in the central Rocky mountains, a little town called Salida, went to high school there and cut my teeth just hunting, fishing, and trapping when I was a kid and always had an idea I wanted to spend my life in the outdoors. And here I am 43 years later in my career, and I guess I got to do that. I went to Colorado State University after I left Salida and got a degree in wildlife biology and uh, management and went to work initially for the Colorado Division of Wildlife then. I was a district wildlife manager, which is a combined game warden biologist. And I worked for the state in many positions in the field for 31 years for the Division of Wildlife and Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I um, enjoyed that career immensely, did a lot with turkeys, and I'll tell a story here in a few minutes. But I, I left Colorado Parks and Wildlife after 31 years and went to work in private consulting, working on wildfire mitigation, high-profile water projects, endangered species, and et cetera. And in 2015, saw a job announcement with the National Wild Turkey Federation for a, it was the Southwest Conservation Field Manager position at the time that was announced in 2015. And I took the job announcement into my wife in the kitchen and said, babe, look at this announcement. What do you think about it? And she said, well, the only thing missing from that is your name she knew my history. My wife had been a wildlife officer as well. She knew the passion it takes to do what we all do, what you do well, and Barry, what Barry does. And, and so I applied, and I've been with NWTF now going on eight years in many, many capacities. The Southwest Conservation Field Manager position was managing conservation staff in eight Southwest states. And then I moved into the Senior Director of conservation for the West region. So I oversaw all conservation delivery and staff in the Western half of the country. And then I moved into a national partnership position. And now I'm in the national director of conservation and state policy position for the NWTF. And I've just been thrilled to be here. And my, I'll tell you my connection, Will, to mm -hmm. the National Wild Turkey Federation. In the early 1980s, when I first went to work full-time for Colorado Division of Wildlife. I was down in Southeast Colorado, Trinidad, Colorado, great wild turkey hunting, Miriam's part of the 
of the state. And we had had a, an all-age die-off of turkeys in southwest Colorado for mycoplasm. And we were looking for a way to repopulate, well, first depopulate to get all the sickness out of the birds in southwest Colorado and then bring healthy birds back in. We began a very heavy-duty trap and transplant effort in southeast Colorado. And I went to um, my supervisor at the time required all of his field staff to come to an NWTF banquet that was being held in Pueblo, Colorado. And I think it was one of the first ever in the state. It was in 1985. And I went to the banquet, and at that banquet, I met Dick Kirby and Rob Keck from NWTF, Dick Kirby from Quaker Boy Calls, of course. And I was just thrilled to death with what I saw and what I heard. And Dick Kirby gave each of us a custom-made box call, and then he drew a, a picture, a hand-drawn picture of a gobbler on the back and signed his name and gave us each a little, a little bunch of uh, diaphragm calls. And I thought, man... I, I've never hunted turkeys. It's 1980s. I'm I'm going to go back into my district where I had lots of turkeys and I'm going to hunt one. So that that night uh, and turkey season was about to open, I cut out a turkey decoy out of a piece of cardboard and used my kids' crayons to color uh, pick uh, color the right colors of feathers on it. Put it on a broomstick handle. <laughs> took my old over and under shotgun. I was a real rookie turkey hunter and went out there with this turkey call that Dick Kirby gave me. Sat down got a gobbler to pitch immediately out of the roost. And he came running and gobbling into my uh, little uh, silhouette, if you will, of a turkey decoy. Only he was running onto it to the narrow side. And until he got right alongside of it, he kept running. And then all of a sudden he went into a dead stop and a full strut. And the second he did, I shot him and I thought, well, that ain't so hard. <laughs> but, uh, but it is yeah. a lot harder than that. From that point on, we started working with NWTF for boxes, trap supplies, building trapping materials. And over the next three years, my partner and I down in Trinidad moved over 2,000 turkeys from around southeast Colorado to southwest Colorado with the extreme help of the National Wild Turkey Federation chapter down in Trinidad, Colorado. And the guy that was a champion down there, Jim Hamilton, just passed away like six months ago. Mm -hmm. He was a forever life member, great steward for wild turkeys and wild places and a good friend of mine. And that's what hooked me to the NWTF. And throughout my career with the Division of Wildlife, I kept all of my staff always directly connected to NWTF and working with wild turkeys. And when I retired, I was the Southwest Regional Manager on Director Staff and oversaw all of the field operations in Southwest Colorado where those turkeys had died originally. So we, we did a lot of things because of that first connection i made with dick kirby and rob keck mm -hmm. in 1985 down at trinidad and just really thrilled to be part of this organization in its 50th wow man well i just learned something tom i, I mean i didn't realize dick kirby had an avenue for both of us in this organization that's pretty cool yeah isn't that cool <laughs> yeah small world you reminded me when you said what happened with you barry yeah small small world it's i hope you still have that call I, I do. I was going to pull it off the shelf, but it's under about 25 of them. And I don't know if they'd all, I didn't want to have a call avalanche on live video. Hey, that'd, right. that'd make a good social media reel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny that y'all both have that connection. Uh, you know, as big as our industry is it, I mean, you know, as many people as there are and as many companies, it's pretty pretty amazing at how small it actually is and how many connections you make that overlap over the years. There it is. 
There it is. Wow, there's the Dick Kirby part that on the back. That's pretty cool. Wow. That is pretty cool. And he drew that on there. I, yeah, he hand drew it while I sat there. And I watched him. I thought, man, that is really something. And I used this thing until the side split. Oh, we yeah. called so many turkeys. This year will be the 39th year that my sons and I, and it used to be my dad and my brother and I as well, would all as a family turkey hunt. This is our 39th year in a row. And it started with this call. Mm. And that, since oh, then, cool. of course, I've gotten a few more, but pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. Well, gentlemen, you know, one of the the most important things about hunting in general is the conservation. You know, obviously we all love to go out, enjoy what what we have from public lands to private lands, the animals that are there, the harvesting, uh, wild game. We eat it. We love it. And just the experience, overall experience in the outdoors. You know, a lot of people love that. Um, but I feel like one of the things that a lot of the younger generation that they need to be taught about is the different things and different initiatives that are put forth so they can continue to have those resources and enjoy those things. And one of the things that y'all are doing at NWTF is y'all's big six initiative for North America. And so I want to talk to y'all about that. So Tom Barry doesn't matter who gets us started, but let's dive into what the big six is for the listeners out there. Well, so real quick before Tom gets into the details of the big six, I just want to take a second, kind of paint the picture for the big six a little bit. Um, you know, to your point, the education side of hunting and conservation is probably the biggest uh, message that needs to get out there for that younger generation. Mm-hmm. So they understand how all that works. So, you know, not to belabor the, the conversation too long, but the Pittman-Robertson Act, which was initiated back in the early 70s, was put into place so that hunters themselves would pay an excise tax on guns, ammunition, and and outdoor equipment that in in turn is put back on the ground for conservation. So, you know, for for most agencies across the country, that's the largest funding they have Mm -hmm. in their agency to be able to do what they do in conservation. I think it's awesome that hunters went and applied that tax on themselves back then, recognizing that it was going to take that kind of an investment to ensure conservation and hunting heritage are here for their grandchildren and ultimately for my grandchildren. And, you know, for those who don't understand how it works is that basically an agency has to give a dollar through some sort of funding, like a license sale to get $3 from the uh, Pittman-Robertson Act to be able to spend back on the ground. So, you know, license sales are a key component to them being able to do that. And that's why hunting heritage and hunter numbers got to continue to increase so that they can continue to do that conservation. I would say 85% or 80%. Tom may know more exact details of all conservation is done through the Pittman-Robertson funding of these states acquire. So that's how important it is to create more hunters so that they can get that license sell money. Um, you know, the other thing is that I hear all the time is that a lot of these states have written a constitutional right to hunt and fish. And when I worked in Nebraska, they had just passed it when I first got hired. Mm-hmm. And most of the, the Nebraska volunteers felt like that had was a great accomplishment and it was and it felt like that had saved their right to hunt and fish well it was probably two years after that law passed that they came out with the mountain lion season well it was probably three months after it had been approved for a mountain lion season that it was closed because of some legislature move in, inside the the department there in nebraska so what that showed everybody in nebraska was just because we have this written in our state constitution 
it does not mean that we have the right to hunt a mountain lion. It says we have the right to hunt fish, but it doesn't say what we have the right to hunt fish. So ultimately, somebody can still determine that for us as well. So that was a huge eye opener for our volunteers there to go, man, we got to join this fight. We got to get involved with the NWTF. We got to put aside our own likes and dislikes. We got to build an army that's going to protect hunting heritage and conservation because what's it going to look like in 15 to 20 years, right? And that was 15 years ago Mm -hmm. when I started to work as an RD. So look where we are today. I mean, we're in a bigger fight now than we were then. So, you know, I I always laugh when I hear somebody say, I went to Starbucks and got me a latte and it cost me, you know, eight dollars for a latte but yet when you tell them an nwtf membership's 35 dollars like oh man i don't know about that well it's a year membership for 35 bucks and you just went and bought one latte cost you eight dollars you're gonna more than exceed that 35 if you do that every day yes especially if the yeah <laughs> once so anyway, a day so what tom's about to tell you is only possible because of members and memberships and volunteers and that's what ultimately makes the nwtf who they are you know i tell people all the time staff did not build the nwtf volunteers built and will continue the NWTF well into the future. I can't do it. Tom can't do it. Kurt and Jason can't do it. It takes an army of volunteers that believe in the mission, understand why it's important, and then go out there and recruit new members. So anyway, I just want to take the time to kind of paint why this big six is such an important part of the future of conservation. Right. You know, one thing I want to ask y'all both, you know, uh, 2020, we obviously saw COVID that, a lot more people were spending time in the outdoors. Did y'all see an increase in volunteers from that? And have y'all continued to see an increase since then? We've seen an increase, but a different type of increase or different type of volunteer, right? Because a lot of these were the ones that were going to the grocery store and there was no meat on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And so they knew that they could come to my house and I got a freezer full. We got elk, we got deer, we got turkey, we got it all, right? I don't have to go to the grocery store and worry about meat. Yeah. So it actually brought in a whole new type of volunteer, which has been a breath of fresh air for us to get to teach and coach these folks that look, just because you don't hang it on your head doesn't mean you can't be a volunteer or, or a hunter, right? I mean, back in the day, hunting never started with how big the beard was, the spurs, or what the rack scored. It was all about filling the freezer. Mm-hmm. And so I feel we got to get back to that mentality. And these new volunteers that are coming in due to COVID and that meat shortage they're actually helping us reestablish or reset what hunting is all about. Yeah. And I think that's where you, this might be a tangent here, but you know, that's where you saw such a big rise in bow hunting and everything. And more and more people wanting to get involved with that because they were wanting to see where their meat's coming from. They want to know because of what, what you just stated. So yeah, really big there for volunteers. And uh, I would assume that we've probably seen the same rise across other organizations, conservation groups as well. So Let's dive into the big six, Tom. Tell us, you know, kind of give us the meat and potatoes of what it is. Well, I'll, I'll go back to uh, when Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt, when our initiative started in right around 2013. Barry was a big part of putting that together. At, at that, It actually began in about talking about in 2011, 2012, and launched in 2013 at a time when I was still coming out of the state wildlife agency. But Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt, needed a platform, needed a some sort of a platform and foundation to work from that, as Barry described, that created some unique identities across the country, some unique opportunities, but also some similarities uh, in terms of natural resource values across the country. The big six of conservation was designed 
to do just that, to recognize regions of the country that, that were very distinct. The Western wildlands, for example, America's Western wildlands is distinctly different from um, America's Mid-South rebirth, for example, or the Northeastern states. And, and But they also have similarities in that wildlife re still require the same habitat components of food, water, cover, shelter, space, and arrangement, and all the things we all know about to thrive. It may be an oak tree instead of a ponderosa pine, or it might be a cottonwood in the river bottom, you know, instead of something else in the, in the eastern zones. But it... it uh, it still, it still all comes down to habitat. The Big Six of Conservation was designed to give a landscape scale approach to doing conservation work uh, in areas that, for example, in the Western wildlands that would directly relate to the challenges that are there. And when you look at the Western wildlands, for example, one of the biggest challenges right now, of course, is wildfire. Mm -hmm. It's water and drought, it's insects and disease, it's, et cetera. When you go to um, America's great open spaces, it doesn't change that much. A lot of what you see happening in the West is starting to migrate east along the way. When you get clear east, when you get into the southern piney woods, you're not as concerned, not concerned at all about drought. You're concerned about too much water. You're concerned with water quality, not as you're concerned with water quantity and water quality, but water quantity in the the uh, the over amount of water that's there, the abundance of water and how to manage that so habitats don't become flooded in water quality in terms of salinity and different things that get into the systems where there's an immense amount of water that flows from north to south. And so the big six became the platform that fundraisers that Barry uh, supervises, overseas deploys to help volunteers raise money out on the landscapes across these big six areas. They could They can focus on those unique challenges, unique opportunities, and uh, what the natural resource challenges are that they need to work with there. The landscape scale approach, Will, was designed because for years and years, and thinking back to my early days in the 1980s working that I mentioned down in Trinidad, chapters worked a lot on, on food plots for wild turkeys, putting feeders for wild turkeys, real small scale conservation projects. And those are all really good for what's in your backyard, but they don't connect to a lot of the bigger stuff. Overall, they're incredibly successful. And I'll tell you, save the habitat, save the hunt. We blew all of our goals clear out of the water with our approach to uh, conservation for the 10-year period that save the habitat, save the hunt was in place. And even though the big six was a landscape scale conservation approach, you know, it takes a, a change in culture to move from a smaller acre by acre approach to conservation to landscape scale. It takes a lot more thought. It takes a lot more outreach. It takes being willing to move out of your backyard, maybe out of one big six region into another big six region across counties, across forests, uh, across state lines and places where wildlife don't know jurisdictional boundaries. Mm -hmm. uh, the environmental impacts that we've all seen in our lifetimes don't know jurisdictional boundaries. And so those challenges and opportunities all start to blend across lines. And it makes a lot of sense that landscape scale and a landscape scale approach to conservation becomes the way forward. So the big six, I'll kind of pause after this, but the big six was a very formidable forward thinking way of addressing landscape scale conservation. To be honest though, 
uh, the NWTF and really the country wasn't quite yet ready for landscape scale conservation. So it was a little bit ahead of its time. And as you mentioned, Will, 2020 changed the world we live in. We saw so many changes in how things uh, were, were being handled, mm -hmm. how many people felt like they really needed to check their bucket list and get out into the field. Talk about a, a Pittman-Robertson bump in revenue. License sales across the states went through the roof. Everybody felt like they needed to apply for everything and go hunt everywhere. We always we always refer to that as the PR bump. It goes along and goes along the money that comes into the states from the Pittman-Robertson Act that's, that is allocated through the Fish and Wildlife Service stays at a fairly stable level until there's some political bump somewhere that that makes our hunters or firearms owners feel like they're right to keeping their arms in jeopardy so they go buy everything. Yeah. So PR dollars yeah. go way up. And we've all seen that happen in the past. The same thing happened with COVID. That PR bump had a drastic influence on money available to state wildlife agencies for habitat work that became available for work we were doing across the big six. And and so I'll pause there in case you have any thoughts or questions about it before I continue. No, you go right ahead, Tom. So, so as the NWTF then uh, found ourselves in a place in 2020, Barry and I were faced with some incredible challenges. Barry's folks were incredibly challenged with what COVID presented and very correct the numbers, but somewhere around $11 million of revenue that we would normally have generated through the fundraising arm that Barry was involved with fell off the table because of COVID. We shut down all those banquets. All the volunteers that did all that great work across the country had to do something else during that time. And we found ourselves, NWTF, in a place where we had to make a major adjustment. So NWTF in our conservation section, which I oversaw, we let go 17 conservation biologists wow. just because of funding. We had to cut our expenses way down to somewhere get in line with the revenue. And we laid off 56 staff across the organization. Hmm. So all the branches and Barry's branch and my branch. And it forced us to make a change organizationally that we probably needed to make years before. But until you're forced with it, we really never did. And so we began to look at a way to do more with less and began what we call the landscape scale initiative-based conservation evolution of the way we deliver conservation now across the country. The big six of conservation that started in about 2013 became front and center for how we're going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, deliver conservation going forward. And we all know that, uh, that what really keeps hunting alive as a viable tool, as the tool for wildlife conservation are things like the North American model of wildlife conservation. And Barry mentioned the American model of conservation funding, the license money that funds conservation through state wildlife agencies and of course, PR dollars. So having formidable conservation strategies like our conservation evolution, landscape scale initiative-based conservation delivery is incredibly important. We took the big six of conservation in 2020 and we said, so what can we do to actually develop a strategy for landscape scale conservation? And we're doing that through initiatives that we're developing across the country. And I'll give you an example. We've had some initiatives in the past we've worked on. The uh, uh, Longleaf Pine Initiative in the southeast part of the country has always been one that we've been involved in. But 
but we didn't really lead it. We don't need to lead it, but there's some objectives that we wanted to see really go forward to help move the needle for the mission of the NWTF. There are other initiatives that I can mention around the country we've always been a part of, but we want to be a bigger player in. And one that is huge in the Midwest and in the eastern part of the country is the White Oak Initiative. The White Oak is so important to wildlife. And, you know, we all know that industries have value. The White Oak Initiative is very important to the whiskey barrel industry, but the the offtake of wood for whiskey barrels or in the West where you take timber and turn it into two by fours, that's really a byproduct from our standpoint. The number one priority for us is wildlife habitat. Mm-hmm. What is the wildlife habitat component? And the white oak is is crucial to wild turkeys in the eastern part, southeastern part, really the midwestern part of the United States. It is a huge landscape. It's one that we're proud to be a part of. No the White Oak Initiative, but we we started developing some initiatives. And as the wildfires raged in the West, NWTF knew we needed to do something there. And we co-convened with the Forest Service, the Rocky Mountain Restoration Initiative that's centered in the state of Colorado that brought, brought to play the Shared Stewardship Initiative that USDA launched in 2018, an all hands, all lands, all brands approach to, to, to active and responsible forest management in a way that protects watersheds, protects uh, communities, keeping them resilient from wildfires and flash floods, protects and conserves uh, healthy forests and wildlife habitat, and provides uh, a good, safe access for recreation on public lands, primarily in the West at that time, but recreation to all lands, public and private, when you do healthy forest management. So RMRI, as we call it, became the first formidable initiative in the Western America's Western wildlands of the big six. The second one that we developed in in America's great open spaces is the Waterways for Wildlife Initiative. And we started to recognize and our director of conservation operations, Jared McJunk, had worked very closely with Barry staff and our uh, development staff across the country, uh, our media staff, to look at a way to really capitalize on the waterways that we see that stretch from uh, Canada to Mexico, to be frank, through the Great Plains of the United States. And the Waterways for Wildlife Initiative now has an annual request for proposals of about $300,000 that we put up on the table. A lot of that comes from the fundraising work that Barry's folks do, the development work that uh, that they do in our development arm and, and great work that the volunteers do all across that part of America's great open spaces. And then we match that as much as five to one. We'll turn $300,000 into $1.5 million, put it out on the ground for waterways that wildlife depend on. And we know that water is the number one natural resource lifeblood in this country. And we always uh, ask people if they'd like to invest in conservation it has to do with water and we just say if you drink water you know someone does you should be interested in this and and of course everybody's interested in it from that standpoint so waterways for wildlife has been hugely successful it it affects thousands of miles of riverine ecosystems across the great plains from from canada to mexico through texas and and covers multiple states in that area so that's a big one for us yeah We've got another one that we're working on right now in the Southeast called Habitat for the Hatch. And it hasn't been officially announced yet, but it will it will um, address one of the greatest conservation questions 
go back to the greatest conservation success story has been the, the restoration of the wild turkey from beginning in about 1973, just north of a million birds to being just north of 7 million birds just a few years ago. But we've seen declines all over the country for a lot of reasons. A lot of, a lot of habitat related issues in the east and southeast and Habitat for the Hatch deploys a tremendous amount of finance into the research arm, into the habitat restoration arm to take a hard look at the production part of the wild turkey conservation in the southeast part of the country. Mm -hmm. So we're real excited about that one. We're going to talk about that one publicly in June coming up. And again, I want to pause there, Barry, if you've got anything you want to add or, or will. You know, no, I think you've done a great job explaining uh, the initiatives for sure. And the big six, as far as why it was started, you know, I would just say that the benefit that we saw organizationally is, you know, everybody wants to be able to point to something in their backyard or say they were a part of something in their backyard. And I think the mm -hmm. big six allowed us to focus our volunteers across the country on those uh, big six initiatives. So we saw a, a much we saw a spike in our, our uh, excitement and fundraising across the country when somebody could say they were contributing to these initiatives that were in their backyard. That shiny nickel is what we what we call it. So, um, you know, and, and I guess back to my comments earlier about membership. I mean, for thirty five dollars, you can be a part of everything Tom just said. I mean, be a part of, you know, water quality and turkey research and, you know, all these things that we're doing with wildfire, you know, issues. And for thirty five bucks, you can be a part of that. and and then again, have that opportunity to uh, play a role in your own town, your own backyard. And, you know, the, the thing that just kind of listening to both y'all talk, um, you know, obviously I think uh, to the listeners out there, if you hunt turkey, you're also hunting many other things too. Uh, right. Y'all's initiatives, they don't just necessarily solely serve turkeys either. I mean, there's other game species that, Yes, I mean, obviously, it's it's going to help the turkey populations and everything out, but it's going to help out other game species as well when it comes to the big six. I mean, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I always tell our volunteers, we're not out there planting roost trees. We're planting trees, but no turkey is going to roost in that tree for a long time. Mm -hmm. We're doing prescribed burns. You know, it's going to benefit a turkey, but you watch how many white-tailed deer show up there and how many quail, what your quail population starts doing. I mean, Anything we do for the, the wild turkey benefits a bunch of wildlife, pheasants, all of them. So great point. It's an ecosystem yeah. thing. Big thing. Yeah, absolutely. Big thing. Yeah, we, you know, we're, we're a, our mission is centered on the wild turkey, of course. Mm. But but the work we're doing, especially at the landscape scale now and the forest restoration work that NWTF does, uh, wild turkeys, honestly, when you look at the, look at it, the work that's being done in an ecosystem reference, there are far more things being impacted than wild turkeys. There are some landscapes we work in that don't directly impact a wild turkey, but that old saying, what happens at the head of the watershed doesn't stay there. You know, we, we uh, apply that across the country. You can do work at, uh, at in some places in Colorado at the heads of watersheds that don't impact turkeys at all. But by the time it gets downstream, a few miles it absolutely does and everything ties in together that's the beauty of what god created out on the landscape mm -hmm. it, it's all interlinked and intertwined and we try to do our work accordingly to that and just to talk about the forest restoration work uh, the nwtf this is kind of one of those things that we don't brag about too much but it's a it's a fact that people don't 
honestly don't realize. We're, we're the number one contractor with the U.S. Forest Service in stewardship agreements for active forest management. We literally do forest work in every region of the Forest Service across the United States. In 2019, NWTF was ranked number five in the country among all purchasers of federal commercial timber by volume. And that's because of the amount of work we do in all the national forests across the United States. Uh, the majority of those areas have something to do with wild turkeys, but a lot of them don't. Yeah. It has to do with what we call the four shared values, Will. And those those values came to us from partners from the Rocky Mountain Restoration Initiative that we really apply in every landscape scale initiative effort that we do in the country now. And I mentioned them earlier. Number one is water. Mm -hmm. Water's at the tip of the spear. The second value, and these aren't in order of importance necessarily, but wildlife habitat and healthy forests is number two. Number three is ample access to recreation. And, and hunting is part of that. There's a lot of recreation that occurs on our public land. And COVID, the demand for access to recreation went through the yeah. roof. And then lastly, watching what happens to communities that are burning up in the West right now. Communities being flooded, devastated by hurricanes and flash floods and debris flow and wildfire and you name it. So keeping communities resilient is an important quality of life that everybody wants to wants to think about and what what happened when we started to identify those four shared, shared values it took us out of our myopic lens i guess of thinking just about my backyard and the wild turkey and for all those people that are benefiting from the vast amount of forest restoration work that the national wild turkey federation does they're not investing in it they're mountain biking in a pristine forest that we just helped put in a better shape. They're whitewater rafting or kayaking in a beautiful pristine watershed that finds its headwaters on national forest system lands that we're doing stewardship work on. So we're looking at a way to reach out to those non-traditional partners mm -hmm. to invest in what hunters have been, been investing in for a hundred years now. And certainly since the license system came into play and it's amazing how many folks say, of course I want to, be a part of that. Yeah. Of course I want yeah. to invest in that. And and that's part of the strategy of moving the needle in, at a landscape scale. If you can't keep going to the to the glass full of uh, if if you're if the water only fills a glass, you're only impacting however far that glass of water. But if you make that all of a sudden a bucket and a bathtub and go from there, that's what we're trying to do with the non-traditional partner opportunity. And when you look at recreation alone, Hunters have always been our traditional go-to uh, recreationists, but what about those others, the whitewater rafters, the downhill skiers, the uh, uh, mountain bikers, and go down the road with that? When you look at resilient communities, people want to know that when they live in, live in the wildland urban interface, and they moved there because yeah. they didn't want to live in the city. They wanted to see wildlife in pristine habitats and walk out of their back door and hike through the mountains. Well, the work we're doing provides all that for them that we're doing with our partners and our volunteers, but they're not investing in it. Well, now they're starting to invest in it a little bit. And that that's what the future has to look like. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's uh, kind of what I was talking about earlier. I mean, I think that's real big that, you know, if we have a listener out there right now that's, you know, they're hearing this like, oh, I don't turkey hunt. Like, why do I want to, why do I want to, you know, donate to the NWTF or what I want to be a member. And I think what y'all just said is big because it's not just impacting turkeys. It's way more than that. So 
definitely a big thing for listeners to think of out there. So when it, when we come back to the big six, you know, I heard you talk about earlier, you know, there, there's different challenges that each region faces, right? You know, each region has, I would assume, multiple, multiple uh, challenges, uh, just depending on what part of the region we're uh, talking to. But what I want to focus on is, you know, let's let's look at those six regions and let's look at probably the blanket challenge. What's what's a holistic challenge that each region faces and what y'all are doing to uh, combat those efforts? Well, from a financial perspective, the biggest challenge we have is raising enough money to do all the work mm-hmm. because it costs to do the work in those regions. And, I, and we have some huge projects that we could pull off. We just got to have the funding to do it. So right now I'd say it's the challenge. The manpower is there. The opportunities are there. We just got to have the dollars to implement. And so it's so only add to that because Barry hit the nail on the head. So if you ask the fundraiser, Barry's number one challenge is raising the fund, the funding that we're asking them for, for us, the number one natural resource challenge is forest, forest health. And that's because there's a huge public uh, social value that we work with every single day. And there's a segment of the public, of course, that supports forest restoration, i.e. cutting trees and prescribed fire. There's a segment that maybe doesn't think about it too much. Mm -hmm. And then there's a segment that vehemently opposes cutting any tree, lighting any acre of ground in terms of removing wildfire fuels and, and ground clutter, et cetera. When we do forest restoration, and this will get onto the part that Barry talked about, uh, in some of the landscapes, well, uh, on, I'll just put it this way, Will. On average, it costs anywhere from $500 to $800 an acre to treat one acre of forest about anywhere in the country. If you go west, it gets around 2000 an acre. If you go to the Midwest, it can be $500. If you get to some of the places in the east and northeastern states, it's back up around 1000 an acre. So when the NWTF does a forest stewardship agreement with the U.S. Forest Service, as an example, we're required by law to provide a 20, by policy, provide a 20% non-federal match to the work being done on the ground. So the Forest Service will come to us and say, great news, we've got a, we've got $2 million. We would like to invest in our stewardship agreement. You need to come up with uh, 20% of that and put it back on the ground. Well, 20% of, you know, of $2 million is, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden we got $400,000. We're telling Barry and his people, we need them to help raise for us. And and how do you do that at, at a banquet level? Uh, so that's the challenge that Barry's talking about. Now, the chief of the Forest Service, for example, did um, uh, sign a new memorandum that gives the ability to request a match waiver and and waive some of that match requirement down, which is helping us put more dollars to spread those dollars across a greater landscape on the ground. And so far, we've been able to get an approval down to a 5% match rate. So that's putting four times the dollars back out on the ground that Barry and his folks go out and fundraise or that we find others that want to contribute through philanthropy or, or other ways into the work we're doing. So that's going to help quite a bit. <clears throat> but to your question, Will, from a natural resource standpoint, mm-hmm. the social value that the public sees right now in forest restoration is a massive challenge. It It's the same challenge in the West 
where entire communities are burning down as it is in the northeastern states in the uh, the colonial, the America's colonial force landscape uh, of the big six. It's the same thing there as it is in the Western wildlands and trying to educate the public, <clears throat> excuse me, on how important it is that active forest management occur because in most forests, I'll give you an example, a fresh one in my mind from the state of Arizona that uh, a, a, what should be looking back at historical forest stand density levels, anywhere from 10 to 15 stems or trees per acre is considered a healthy forest. And a lot of those forests now in central Arizona were well over a thousand trees per acre. Wow. What happens wow. is the size of those trees stunt and instead of growing to bigger diameters and being healthier trees that sequester great amounts of carbon, provide great wildlife habitat suitability, they're little tiny dense stems that really all they create are ladder fuels for crown wildfires, which are the real intense ones, incredible amounts of fuel loading at the base that burns down forests, it doesn't treat them like regular, um, non-regular, meaning non-catastrophic wildfires would do in history. Currently, they're burning at catastrophic levels that uh, create burn scar intensity uh, holdovers that last for decades that we can't recover from. So getting the public to understand the science behind it, there's a difference between opinion and science. And most of what the public lands on is their opinion, their beliefs. What they don't, uh, don't always have a grasp of is the science. It's a big challenge across all of our all of our arms of the NWTF, various folks included, to get that message across. It would help them with fundraising. It would help the public to better understand. It would put our national force and even private land force. We have great, uh, some great initiatives and work that we're doing with the Natural Resource Conservation Service, which is treating all private land, mm -hmm. which is about 90% of our work in the East, where the public land work is about 90% in the West. We're doing that uh, through the National Forestry Initiative on private land. Private land forests are incredibly important from the Midwest East. And so we're trying to emphasize that as well. And seeing that that's, you know, you touched, uh, you touched on that subject of fire intensity, Tom, I think that's a point we should start, stop and talk about again, just so people understand it. Cause I hear all the time, well, forest fires have been a part of, you know, forest forever. Right. Um, but to your point, there's a difference, the heat intensity, that we're seeing out of these fires nowadays literally sterilizes that ground to an extent. So you're saying that carryover is a lot longer, you know, because you hear people talk about Yellowstone and when the fire went through there, they saw flowers and things I hadn't seen in years and years. Well, that was because that fire wasn't near as intense as what we've seen, like, say, in the Pine Ridge of, of Nebraska, right, in South Dakota when that one went through there. You go through there today and it still looks like it did four or five years ago when that fire went through without even a blade of grass under the trees. Mm -hmm. So. Anyway, I don't, to your point, people don't understand that difference between heat intensity. And see, and that's that's where I think we kind of come back to full circle of we need to continue to create more hunters. We need to introduce hunting to more people because there's a lot of people out there that they don't hunt or they may have once or twice in the, when they were a kid, didn't really care for it, and they didn't really care where their meat came from. And so they're like, oh, Forest restoration, I don't care. That doesn't affect me. But I think when you become a hunter, you become a steward of the land, and you understand that more. And I think that's where 
we as hunters and conservation groups have to continue to create new avenues for hunting for more people that want to get introduced to it and try to introduce it to more. You know, Colorado did a great job and has for a while. They had a program, maybe still do, called uh, Hug a Hunter Program. Mm -hmm. And the the commercials they would show on TV literally be a guy out there deer hunting and blaze orange, and all of a sudden a bird watcher would come out of nowhere and just give him a big hug. What they were basically doing is associating those PR funds and how how hunters basically are pioneers of conservation, give that birder the opportunity to go out and watch the birds. I mean, great messaging, right? Yeah. Because it, it brought the two together and showed the relationship and how, how important it is. So to your point, it is, it, it is more hunters that help with conservation yeah. for sure. And seeing, I'll probably get a couple, uh, I don't know where this one will go, but I think that's where you look at a couple, there, there's different conservation groups that have different viewpoints on things, whether they're, we might get a little pol- political on this one, but there's some that are more left-leaning and right-leaning that at the end of the day, it kind of comes back to what you're saying where, yes, obviously bird watcher, they're not wanting to go out and shoot it for meat like we do. They want to go out and watch it, right? And so while you've got two different viewpoints, you're essentially trying to cultivate the same thing, wouldn't y'all say? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Will. In fact, in fact, um, many, many hunters that I've known in my career time which i've said has spanned more well enough decades that you understand the color of my hair here <laughs> it's blonde there are a lot it's of blonde birds. yeah <laughs> yeah there's a there are a lot of non-consumptive activities that happen by mm-hmm. folks that also hunt elk in the fall i mean it it's they cross the aisle in terms of politics they cross the aisle in terms of hunting and not and but i think to your point bringing us full circle back to the importance of hunters as the first conservationist is so incredibly important. And I think hunters as a whole, and again, haven't been, been around in a long time, need to wake up and smell the roses yeah. as well, or smell the forest because the, the, I live in the Rocky mountains right now in Gunnison, Colorado. And, and I've got to the South of me, one of the biggest burn scars Colorado's ever seen. And all around me, beetle kill trees that as I was growing up uh, just against the continental divide here, I was surrounded by green, pristine national forests. Now they were already uh, that going back into the seventies when I was in high school. They were already starting to over uh, they become overabundant. They needed more active forest management. the The time of uh, anti forest work began really in the sixties and seventies, and has proliferated into the time we're at right now. I want to mention an effort that NWTF is involved in right now that. I think really exemplifies an incredible out-of-the-box uh, way of looking at cross-big-six jurisdictional conservation work. NWTF entered into an agreement, landmark agreement, with the Forest Service this last October. It's a national master stewardship agreement that allows us to do forest restoration work across Forest Service regional jurisdictions under one agreement, which is the first of its kind ever in our history and in the history of the Forest Service. The Forest Service committed $50 million as an initial investment for our work with them under the wildfire crisis strategy. And one effort that we um, we are leading, and well, this is an effort that's not being done anywhere else on the planet mm-hmm. right now. In an area of Northern California, and we know California has been the ground for the types of fires that Barry was talking about. Not only are they uh, gigantic in size, nothing under a half a million acres anymore, but
but the burn scar intensity leaves impacts on the ground for decades into the future. They have they are those parts of the country that are like in the two to three thousand trees per acre in terms of density that I was telling you about. There's parts of the country in one particular place in Wyoming where a community is about to become an um, closed down because the mill that is the lifeblood, the timber mill that's the lifeblood for it, can't sustain the timber volumes from the local forest in the Black Hills any longer to remain viable. And so we're looking at ways to move timber because of the wildfire crisis strategy, move timber from places of extreme overabundant supply to places where there's a demand that can't be met by national forests. To build a mill anymore is a multiple hundred million dollar uh, investment by the timber industry. We can we cannot afford to lose a single timber mill anywhere in the country, but right now, especially in the West, with the need for active forest management on over 90 million acres of U.S. forest system land. So we've instituted working with the Forest Service and the timber industry and California Deer Association, an effort called the Timber Transport Pilot, moving timber, moving logs from the northern part of California in Region 5 by rail car with Burlington Northern to the Hewlett Wyoming mill in Wyoming. Uh, and that's going from the Western wildlands big six to America's great op open spaces big six. We're having to debark every log before it's put on a rail car because of insects and disease mm -hmm. uh, interest from the research station with the US Forest Service. This, If this is successful, it's a pilot right now. And our goal is to have this thing completely operationalized by the uh, end of March. So wow. the, the the heat is on right yeah. now. We started this back in about October and we're getting really, really, really close to loading the first car. What's holding us up right now is the Sierra Nevada's got 50 feet of snow this winter and now they're getting mm. hammered with rain. And so getting to those areas where the trees are is gonna be really delayed for a while. Well, this is cutting edge. There's nowhere else on the planet mm -hmm. something like this is being done. Uh, we're stepping back into the 40s where moving a tree by rail car no longer pen penciled out economically. And it doesn't here either, but where it does pencil out, <clears throat> excuse me, is now through the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act passed by Congress. There are billions of dollars available to help pay to get this work done to protect America's heritage on our public lands out there. The wildfire crisis is not a Forest Service crisis. It's not a forest crisis. It's an American crisis. Mm -hmm. the, the NWTF wants, we have come alongside the Forest Service to do our part as Americans. Even if it doesn't immediately and directly impact a wild turkey, it impacts the heck out of conservation. Oh, yeah. It shows yeah. that as a hunting organization, we're putting our money where our mouth is and we're coming alongside the Forest Service and trying to create solutions. It's not a spectator sport. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and I've I have learned a lot today, I, a lot, and it's it's all about the education. I mean, I had no idea that that was one of the. I mean, I, I knew we had wildfire and forest issues. I knew that was a huge thing, but I I didn't understand the full impact of it until you talked about the trees per acre. And so, I know, gentlemen, we're running out of time here. So, give us give the listeners, you know, kind of that last minute where they can find out if they want to contribute to NWTF. Barry, I know this is a big part on, on your side of things. So obviously they sign up, but if they want to contribute or any, anything else anywhere to help out with the efforts of NWTF, let us know. 
Yeah, so there's two ways. Obviously, you can go to nwtf.org, learn more about us, and you can also get your membership there and and uh, email me directly. It's bwoods at nwtf.net. I'd be glad to have a conversation with about how you can get involved with the NWTF. And I'll just end with this one last thought on my part is, you know, we talked a lot about national forests and national parks. You know, you think back to Teddy Roosevelt, he must mm -hmm. have had a crystal ball at that point because at that time there was lands everywhere, pristine lands everywhere. And for some reason he felt motivated to go to Congress and say, we need to secure these lands through national parks and national forests so that generations into the future will have that opportunity. Could you imagine today if he'd have never done that? But he was a great conservationist and a hunter mm -hmm. that recognized that this doesn't come by by luck. It comes through effort and it comes through coming together as a one like mind and securing and conserving these lands. So we're in that position today. Now we're just trying to keep them and protect them. Yeah. And it takes an army to do that. So anyway, I just want to add in that for my comments. Yeah, great, great words, Barry. I'll end quickly because I know we're about there. And you hit the nail on the head, Barry. And it goes all the way back to the early conservationists, those with the vision. And what what initiated Teddy Roosevelt to really take the stand he did was the big burn that occurred in, in Idaho in the early 1900s that caused over 2 million acres of devastated landscapes because of wildfire that ran, ran amok. And here we are again. It may not be one two million acre wildfire, but we're exceeding those acreages 500,000 at a time. Mm -hmm. It's time for us to take a look back as Americans at what what we can provide, the help that we can give, the leadership, and it takes bold leadership for sure. Hunters as the first and still primary conservationists that really pony up uh, in terms of what they invest in are so incredibly important. And, and I really appreciate the time to tell this story well. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've loved it. I've, I've learned a lot. And, uh, I mean, it's got me fired up to go help out even more. I mean, just with the local chapter down here in Texas and, you know, that's kind of where I want to end it for somebody that, you know, might be fired up after listening and wanting to get their hands dirty and help. If somebody wants to volunteer with the NWTF, where can they do that? Yeah. Like I said, just get a hold of me first and foremost, be woods at nwtf.net or nwtf.org and uh, get get connected and we'll get you in place somewhere. I mean, obviously the more chapters and the more volunteers, the more we're able to do. And um, we'd love to have you part of this, what we call the, the Turkey Army. Love it. Guys, I really appreciate y'all's time today, taking the time to sit down, talk turkeys, talk wildlife and everything in between. So appreciate it, guys. You bet, Will. Yes, Thank you. Thanks for giving us the opportunity. Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app.